my dad never told me he loved me till he was 45 years old. Right. Um, so I didn't think, oh, look, I knew he did, but, you know, he never said it. And when he did say it, when I was 45, he was drunk. And when I when I brought it up the next day, well, what the hell are you talking about? Um, and I used to get quite angry about that, you know. Um, and then one day... I hung up the phone and, you know, I'm that bastard never tells me he loves me and never tells me. And then I had this epiphany and I thought, why should he? Why should he? So I just vowed for the next, however long it took, every time we're on the phone, because we used to speak every day on the phone. He's in Christchurch, I'm in Auckland. Hey, Pop, how you going? Yeah, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I'd, I'd dump all my crap on him and he'd listen and give me his sage advice and... Um, and I just started at the end of every phone call going, I love you, Pop. Hey, what? Yeah, okay, bye. Holding my head again Making my way through crowded thoughts Sometimes it's hard to get out of it Wow, this is one of those special podcasts that, you know when you hear like a Hollywood actors say, I do one for the studio and one for me. I feel like this is the one for me because I, Mike King is somebody that, like just like you, I watch in the media and I observe and I listen to because of his, I guess, level of clarity that he's able to fly above the clouds in some way. But he's also somebody that I've, from the first day of podcasting, uh, gently been reaching out to for years and years to be a guest on my podcast and today it happened and there's a line that he says in this podcast that Mike says when he talks about you kind of arrive where you need to be at the right time and I don't know what we do with that in today's world you know that kind of the question I have is where does that kind of revelation fit in today's world but it fits if you think about it for a second and that the fact that I'm talking to Mike King in a pandemic, in a lockdown, is kind of beautiful. I mean, I've had different versions of this podcast where it's in a garage, it's on the road, it's in a studio. But the fact that we connected with everything else going on in the world to attempt to have a deep conversation about life, his life, life in general... I find that pretty special and pretty mind-blowing, if I'm honest. So I'm looking forward to bringing you this episode featuring Mike King, where we dive into a bit of what's happening now. I ask him a few questions about growing up. I mean, those are the favorite type of interviews for me, where we can learn a bit more about the guest, learn about how they process the world. So... Without further delay, let's jump into this conversation with Mike King. Just want to say thank you everybody for blowing my mind and joining me each and every week. And thank you Mike for blowing my mind, blowing our minds today in this podcast. Enjoy the episode. Myself. 
and I guess we just go into it, Mike King, so that um, so that we capture all of it. I try and just keep the podcast natural, and yep. you know, I don't even know what natural means anymore, bro. I was trying to think about what I wanted to talk to you about, and the world is so big at the moment. I I don't even know where to start. I mean, you're someone that I follow, as many do, and I like to think that I can see through the BS with you, you know, like there's a certain amount of you try very hard to just deliver life as it is, which is a good, a bit of good, a bit of bad and a place for us to meet in the middle. But, you know, man, I'm someone who is very lucky. I've had a, a good upbringing. I see the world somewhat through tinted lenses and I'm not too sure what to make of the world at the moment, particularly our little corner of the world. Um, I guess my first question to you, Mike, like, are you hopeful, bro? Are you hopeful? Because as a general population person looking out at the world, I don't know what to make of it. So that that's my first question to you. First of all, hello, how are you? And secondly, are you hopeful? No, kia ora, Will. Thank you. Uh, thank you for inviting me on. Um, am I hopeful? Yes, I am. You know, in terms of... Um, our mental health messaging uh, in terms of allowing our young people to be the voice of mental health uh, in Aotearoa uh, and allowing them to to lead the change, not lead the charge, lead the change. I am extremely hopeful. I am also extremely hopeful um, given the... Um, Given the awareness that's out there, uh, the awareness in corporate New Zealand uh, and among the people uh, of the issues facing young people today and wanting to do something about it, where I'm not so hopeful but I'm living in hope is around um, uh, the bureaucrats who are running the mental health um, industry and mm. you know people might find that a strange word, but there is uh, there is billions of dollars um, in mental health and it is an interest industry and people are turning it into an industry and outcomes now are based on uh, economics on money. But I have always said and I maintain that there is more than enough money in mental health to sort out the problems, it is being badly spent and badly mismanaged. So until we get on top of that and until the bureaucrats um, put aside their arrogance, and by arrogance I mean if it's not their idea, then it's not a good idea. If you took a Well, if you took a good idea to uh, the Minister of Health said, look, how about getting a team of young people with mental health experiences, sharing them with the uh, with other young people, um, allowing them to recognise their, um, their their journey and someone else's story, and then find out what what were the things that were said that helped and what were some of the things that were said that didn't help and normalise the biggest problem in mental health, which is an overactive inner critic, which is a really simple solution. Um, they'll give you 30 reasons why you can't. You know, the first words out of every bureaucrat and administrator and clinician's mouth is why you can't do something. And if you continue to tell people why they can't do something, 
people give up. And I sometimes think that that's what the bureaucrats want. They want to make mental health such a big problem uh, and they want to overcomplicate it so ordinary New Zealanders feel like they can do nothing and we should leave it to the experts. In other words, you know, this is just me. Uh, leave the money to us. They're like almost like the 1950s husbands, the way they talk to the wife. Just put on your pretty little shirt, go out the front, entertain people, and get back into the kitchen. And if you question my authority, I'm going to cut your housekeeping off. So I am hopeful, though. I am hopeful, even though it didn't sound like I was. No, man. Look, I just appreciate that you'll go, you'll dive into that for us because, you know, I guess many people's engagement with a lot of what would you say pub- public at the moment is these short bites and what i think has been rising is this long form conversation you know like uh whatever we're doing digitally here is we don't have to really hit a mark there's no resets it's just us kind of feeling and pondering our way through this which is which is kind of weirdly um exactly what i really like about these chats yeah mike you, you kind of talked to um, a couple points that I wanted to bring up, and I guess it's that bu- bureaucratic machine, and I've been trying to think about it. Would this sound fair? So I'll just set it up a little bit. A couple of weeks ago, I talked to a Chinese, no, a Hong Kong businessman, and he's basically up against the pump where he wants to effectively run his store however he wants to, but he's kind of getting this backlash from China and it's a heavy, heavy topic. And I'm not even sure how I got to interview him, but anyway, I found myself talking to this man and at the end, I kind of framed it up where it's the individual versus a machine versus a giant. um, It becomes something more. It's like this idea or a machine. And I started wondering if government's a bit like that and, the fact that when you talk to them, Mike, like, are you talking to someone? Are you talking to an idea when you speak to the government? It doesn't feel like that from someone looking in. It's like a massive machine, like you'd be talking to Apple. The Okay, from, from their perspective, mm. um, and, and just to help people understand why the bureaucrats are like this, um, when you are responsible um, for not only the mental well-being of our most vulnerable, but you're also responsible for the coffers and knowing that if you make one false step mm. that uh, the Twitter will come crashing down on you. So they have become overly cautious. So a lot of the money that is allocated to them um is spent on keeping uh, the organisation safe, you know. So they go through every worst-case scenario. And what I also think people don't really understand is is um, the funding process. So most people, when it comes to mental health, they'll say to Jacinda and they'll say to Andrew Little, why aren't you doing something? Why aren't you doing something? The way the system is set up, is the government can only allocate funds. Mm. 
So they can say, all right, we have got $1.2 billion we want to allocate to mental health. We want some of it to be spent on counselling. We want some of it to be spent on acute units. We want some of it to be spent on um, psychiatry. We want some of it spent on community engagement. Then they pass the money over to the Ministry of Health, and they and only they can decide where that money goes. Um, and because of that, like the, the the prime minister can't go up to the, to Ashley Bloomfield and say, "Hey, Ash, give the Key to Life Charitable Trust five million dollars," because then the whole system's open to corruption. You can't have government official telling our bureaucrats where they can put the money. But because there is this overcautious approach, for example. Um, I'm not sure on the exact amount, uh, but it's somewhere around 60 or $70 million was allocated um, to, to mental health counselling uh, two years ago. Of that, of that money, only 17% has been, has been allocated, only 17% in two years because, you know, they've got to vet organisations, they've got to find out where all the things are going to go and they've got to, you know, so it's a very, very cumbersome process. And I liken, I liken our bureaucratic process to a giant steamliner. When you're on a steamliner and someone falls overboard, they go 25 miles forward before they can turn the boat around. And, you know, everything is so slow and so cumbersome, so people get lost. What we need to be is we need to be a speedboat and we need to react more quickly. And I'll give you an example of, of how the wheels of bureaucracy turn. In 2013, I did a documentary, and you can find it online. You can just Google Target Zero was the name of the documentary. And it was about targeting zero, um, zero suicides in this country. Now, the bureaucrats and the ministry and, 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 the, you know, and the clinicians and the academic, I got attacked you know, uh, uh, unrealistic. You're being unrealistic. You can't target zero. And my response was, of course you can target zero. Uh, every construction firm in the country targets zero in, uh, injuries on their sites. Do they get zero industry, uh, injuries? You know, quite often no, but they're still going for zero. They're not saying let's have a 20% reduction in uh, injury. They're still targeting zero every year. And in um, suicide prevention, how it works for that is every year I target zero suicides in my family, only my family. I don't, you know, like I do, but, but normal people don't have to look outside. You don't have to change the world. You know, we just look at our family, we have a family meeting and go, look, if anyone's struggling in this family, then we talk. You can come to me without fear of judgment, without fear of backlash. You can tell me anything and I will listen and try and pathway you to the help that you need. Um, you know, have I have I reached zero? Yes, I have reached zero every year since 2000. Will I continue to reach zero? As much as it pains me to admit it, I might not. But that's the reality of the situation. That's the reality. So if we all just target our own families and keeping our own families safe, 
Uh, and then once we've all got into that dialogue, maybe expand it out to our sports clubs, to our friends, to to our extended whānau. So there are different ways of looking at it. Instead of looking at the blanket approach that we're currently using, let's just target the pods that we're in. Yeah, yeah, I think um, that will register and it registers with me because it, it's it's something people can imagine doing, you know, it makes more logical sense. I mean, um, yeah. and it, it's That's what's trick. missing, Will. Yeah, That's yeah. what's missing, common yeah. sense. Mm. Everything that comes out of my mouth is common sense. It's most of it's not my ideas. Most of it isn't my original thought. Most of it has come from young people, from old people, from community members. It's about going around using these, listening, 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 and listening over and over and over again to what communities are saying, what school kids are saying, uh, you know, expanding our horizon, not going in there and saying my view is the only view and this is the answer to everything. We need to listen more. You know, a lot of the research that's done now around um, mental health and in particular around suicide um, is done by academics who talk to small groups of people. Well, in the last nine years, I have listened to, sat down and listened and spoken with over 250,000 young people face-to-face. And what they are telling me face-to-face is a lot different than what the academics and the clinicians' findings are. And what I think they don't realise is young people, when they're under pressure, they will give you the answer they think you want to hear rather than the honest truth. Why? Because they're all looking for validation. We all want to be validated. We all want, you know, that 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 pat on the head, that well done. So we really do need to, you know, need to get out more and, and hear that public voice. At the moment, we've got the bureaucrats and we've got the clinicians. Uh, academics and the clinicians and, you know, those two cogs are, are neatly intermeshed. But the, the public, the third part of the equation, you and me, we're sitting up here spinning all on our own. And, you know, we need to be engaged in these conversations if we want change to happen. Yeah, man. Let me just ask a slightly different question. Did you ever imagine when you were growing up that this would be your life now, that you would be having to kind of advocate for so many of us who are sitting up here spinning? No. um, So for me, I was always a kid that um, never felt like he was good enough. Other kids were faster, academically more gifted. They were stronger than me. I always felt like I was a disappointment to my dad. Mm. You know, I never felt like I was good enough for my dad. So I always had self-esteem issues growing up. Uh, I always wanted to be loved, you know, and I thought the only way you could be loved as a young Kiwi boy was to be world champion at something. So that was my goal, be world champion at something. So I tried everything, rugby, soccer, pool, chess, you name it. I tried everything. And even when I was better than average, 
I knew if I couldn't be world champion at it, it wasn't good enough. So I was always a lost kid, you know, trying and failing and quitting, which really made my dad upset. You know, once you start something, you see it through to the finish. And I, I was like, I can't be champ at that. Screw it. I'm not doing that. You know, I'm going to I'm gonna go and do something else. And then when I was about eight or nine years old, I, turned, uh, I told my first joke. A friend of mine told a joke. No one laughed and some bullies were giving him a hard time about it and get trying to get him to repeat the joke so they could humiliate him. And I told the joke. And it was the same joke everyone heard two minutes before, but this time everyone laughed. And that was the greatest day of my life. That was a day that I realized, you know, that this this is what I could be world champion at, at uh, being a comedian. And I immediately associated people laughing with people liking me. So that was the first day of my comedy career, but it was the first day of my downfall because that was the day that I started seeking the approval of everybody through my comedy. Um, and it wasn't until 2013 um, about well, six years um, out of drug and alcohol addiction, um, my comedy, my comedy was dead. So my comedy was anti-PC, uh, Kiwi blokey comedy, which was big in the 90s and, and the early 2000s. Um, but the world had shifted. The LBGTQ community had come out. You know, um, the world was a different place and, you know, yeah, I was lost. I was seriously lost. And I didn't know where I was going to go. I'd lost my job at Television New Zealand. I'd had a few public meltdowns. So in 2013, I was asked to go up and um, and speak at a small uh, Northland school. And honestly, I was just going to go up there and tell jokes to these kids uh, that had about eight suicides. And um, I was going to go up and tell a few jokes um, make the kids laugh, and um, I knew jokes weren't going to be appropriate when I got up there, so I just got up and started talking about my inner critic and, you know, the conversations that I'd had with myself and beating myself up my whole life and, and never feeling like I was worthy, mm. and um, and I really had an impact on the kids. So from that day forward, you know, all I wanted to do was – you know, make a positive difference. And um, so I had no clue I was going down this road. Um, I always thought my dream job was going to be a comedian. Who mm. knew it turned out to be the job that set me up for, you know, the greatest job that I've ever had. Um, and, and it's a job I don't get paid for, which is really ironic. Um, <laughs> so it's yeah, really cool. Man, I, I don't think I knew that about you, Mike, you know, and I think a lot of people would be surprised to hear that because, I mean, it makes sense in some ways. The one we check in on these days is, as you said, the statistic talked to hundreds of thousands of people, but it started with the trip that you thought you were going to go tell some jokes but it ended yeah. up being this new pathway. Do you, um, I don't really know how to ask this. Do you kind of think life has a plan and that type of stuff, Mike, or uh, I guess. I, I am, I'm not a religious man. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm a great believer in fate. Yeah. You know, uh, fate. Uh, I also believe that your path is set on the day you are born mm. and your, your, your last day is already written. Um, what you do in the middle um, is entirely up to you. Um, so, um, 
yeah, I, you know, I believe in destiny. I believe everything happens as it should and everything happens as it's supposed to. But I also believe that there are moments where you can pivot. Mm. So for me, my whole life, I was one of those kids. I was like a, a kid always wanting to open new presents. Do you know what I mean? I'd open up a present. And wow, this must make things throw it away. Open up another present. Open up another present. I was that guy. And my whole life, I'm a guy that wanted to make things happen. It was like I was walking down the corridor of life. Everyone else would say, walk through the open door. I'd get to a closed door and I'd kick that door open. Um, you know, I was always, where's the next goal? Where's the next goal? Where's the next goal? And um, what I found with my impatience was every time I kicked the door open, there was just another long corridor with more closed doors. So I've had to learn to be more patient. I've had to learn to, to uh, remind myself the reason I am in this room or in this corridor right now is because this is the place I am meant to be. Mm. Uh, you know, don't keep looking down the hallway at another door and rushing up to kick that door open. Just this is where I'm meant to be right now Keep moving forward and only walk through the open doors. When a door is open, that's the door you're meant to go through. And here's here's the thing, though, Will. You know, some of those doors you walk in and there's more adversity, yeah. you know, instead of, uh, you know, hula girls and, and, you know, sun and ukuleles, it could be a lion. You know, but that is the room you're meant to be in. There's a lesson there to learn. Learn the lesson and then keep walking. Um, you know, when we talked before a little bit about logic and clarity and it makes sense, that does. But, Mike, it must be, it must have been brutal to go through. Like, and I say that because uh, I guess, remember I referenced at the beginning, I've had a lucky life in some ways and I, I don't think I've had to be in that room with the tiger yet. You know, oh, but, but but you know, look, you you say you you say that like my journey's over. You know, <laughs> I'm still walking down that corridor. Absolutely, you're still you know you're still walking down that yes. corridor, yes. Will, and and you know when you know when someone really close to you passes mm. that's the room with the tiger that's right you know yeah. and you are going to walk through your mm. life's fine right now mm. but in a heartbeat that true. can change true in a heartbeat yeah, yeah 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 which is why which is why we have to do everything in our power to to be grateful for the things we have right now mm. because like that, they can be taken off us. Yeah, yeah. Look, and I guess I was trying to maybe frame it up like I understand why you advocate and why you can because you kind of have that resilience built through all of those years you were mentioning, you know? I hate resilience. I hate <laughs> the word resilience. I hate all of these people that claim that they can teach resilience. Resilience comes about through bad experiences. Right. You can't tell someone about, you know, a, 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 about how to handle a bad experience. You have to go through that mm. experience, you know, and anyone who says that they can teach you, they are snake oil salesmen. You know, the only way you can learn not to fall down is to fall down. Absolutely. And you will fall down again. You can't 
it's like trying to teach someone how to get punched in the face. Mm. The only way, you know, from a book, the only way you can learn what it's like to be punched in the face is guess what? Get punched in the face. Yeah. And then when you get punched in the face, you go, holy crap, this really hurts. I want to start moving my face out of the way. That's what, you know, I think the word we should use instead of resilience is experience. Mm. It's experience. And, and it's how we experience life. That's where the learning comes, how you experience life, not running away from it, not, not saying, whoa, whoa, is me. It's about experiencing it, putting yourself in the position where you say, instead of saying, why is this happening to me? This is where I am meant to be right now. And it's hard. I mean, you can't just sit there as you're getting punched in the face going, this is where I'm meant to be. It's uncomfortable. Mm. It's horrible. It's something that you don't want to go through. But once you've been through it, you realize that you could have gone through a whole lot more. And when that experience happens again, you're prepared for it. Mm. You tell me, please, if uh, I shouldn't ask these kind of questions, but you mentioned- Ask whatever you like, bro. You'll always get an honest answer. Oh, yeah, but, you know, I'm here just to yarn. Ask whatever you want. Um, You mentioned, you know, you're uh, talking about your dad a little bit. Did you reconcile that? Did he get to see the mic? That is a beautiful question, brother. So my dad was old school, right? Never felt like I was good enough. I remember- my dad never told me he loved me till he was 45 years old. Right. Um, so I didn't think, oh, look, I knew he did, mm. but, you know, he never said it. And when he did say it, when I was 45, he was drunk. And when I when I brought it up the next day, well, what the hell are you talking about? Um, and I used to get quite angry about that, you know. Um, and then one day I hung up the phone and, you know, I'm that bastard never tells me he loves me and never tells me. And then I had this epiphany and I thought, why should he? Why should he? So I just vowed for the next however long it took, every time we're on the phone, because we used to speak every day on the phone. He's in Christchurch, I'm in Auckland. Hey, Pop, how you going? Yeah, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I'd, I'd dump all my crap on him and he'd listen and give me his sage advice. And um, and I just started at the end of every phone call going, I love you, Pop. Hey, what? Yeah, okay, Bye. Uh, next time, I love you, Pop. Yep, yep, okay, bye. About three months later, I went, love you, Pop. And he went, oh, yeah, me too. And I was like, holy shit. I ran home and said, more. I got a me too. I got a me too. I saw the other one. What are you talking I ran the old man and I said, I love you. And he said, me too. Um, three months further down the line, um, love you, Pop. And he went, love you too. And then before he passed, you know, he would say it to me first. And what, what I came to understand was you can only teach what you've been taught. My dad left him and his mum and his brother uh, when they were three years old. And um, so he didn't have a role model there telling him that this is what men do. You know, so he was a real staunch old bugger. Um and I remember about six years ago, I was with my dad when he was diagnosed terminal with cancer. Um, I was with them on that day, and I remember coming out of the room and, you know, like he's just been told by doctors, you know, you might have a couple of months to live. And we walked out of the room and we were both crushed. None of us, you know, he was being stoic and, you know, and I was being stoic and I turned to him and went, 
oh, that was good news, eh, Pop? And he went, what What the fuck are you talking about? They just told me I'm dying. And I said, yeah, um, but you could have dropped dead of a heart attack and I wouldn't be having this conversation with you now. So I don't know how long you get, but I'm going to enjoy every second of it. It's not going to be too good for you, but harden up, buttercup, which is a phrase that he used to always say to me. And we both pissed ourselves laughing. And then I said, I'll go around the corner and give Jennering his wife. And I got around the corner and I just collapsed on the floor and, and bawled my eyes out. Um, and in that two years that I got with my dad, um, you know, we we shared stuff. And there were, there were memories there that I didn't even know existed. My whole life it was always, you know, my brother was better than me and I wasn't good enough. And, um, you know, and then, you know, when... When he was, we would share those moments around his house. He'd bring out old pictures, and there was me and him laughing or doing some stuff. And I remember this lovely story he told me. He goes, "Oh, you remember your, uh, your, you remember the bike I bought you on your twelfth birthday?" And I was like, "Yeah, I do remember." And I, it wasn't a great memory for me because chopper push bikes were the go back then. Ape hangers, banana seats, three gears, green, like a little bit of extended forks, big back wheel, little front wheel. It's like, yeah, chopper. My old man bought me the lookalike chopper and you know it was a gold and it didn't have any gears and yeah it was uh it was the warehouse chopper anyway <laughs> he says you remember i went like i couldn't say yeah, it sucked so i was like yeah pop i remember i remember because yeah do you remember when i gave it to you i said yeah yeah of course i remember of course. we went out to the garage and i'm thinking i don't remember this so remember we went out the garage and i went yeah pop yeah yeah and i opened up the garage store yeah and you saw the bike I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he goes, you started crying and I started crying. And I'm like, I don't remember any of this. But I look over at my dad in, 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 in that moment and there were tears streaming down his cheeks. So I knew it was a true story. But because of the way I used to think about myself and not worthy enough, it was like my brain had filtered out all the good things in my life mm-hmm. and, and and had me focusing on all the negative things in my life. So in answer to that question, brother, I was with my dad on the day he was um, told he was he was uh, terminal, and it's just me and him. And on the day he died in Christchurch Hospital, again, it was just me and him in the room. And, you know, I treasure those moments. So, yeah. Thank you for sharing that, Mike. I really appreciate that. I'm never quite sure, you know. I've probably watched too many hours of you online, so I don't really know what to ask. But you went there with me. And um, what I love, man, is that, you were a comedian when you needed to be, right? You told the joke that. Oh, and still are. You know, still are. Mm. I mean, when you, when, you know, when when you're dealing with such a, you know, a sensitive topic, it can't all be down. You can't mm. take play people all the way down. I mean, people need that release. You know, they need they need that moment of levity. Um, so I do use, you know, my comedy. I take people on a journey, you know, I get them comfortable with, a, you know, with some funny stories. And then uh, we're in the middle of a funny story and it goes down. And then just when people go, oh, my God, wham, I'll take you back up again and let you breathe. And, you know, it's one of and, and when you do that, people go away afterwards and it sits with them easier. <laughs> Remember when he said that, that, that? Yeah, yeah. But that's some similar happened to me. So you can create these 
wonderful engagements and sharing of experiences because someone else has made it safe for you. Yeah, yeah. Mike, I've just got kind of two more points. I don't wish to take up too much of your day, but um, oh, are you a habits guy? Is there something you can share around bro, the I'm like so. How, when you say habits guy, I'm an addict, brother. Mm. I am an addict. Mm. Okay. So um, when when I gave up drugs and alcohol on the 1st of April 2007, I took up tattoos. You know, I, I get a hold of something and, you know, I'm not a test the, test the water with one toe guy. I jump in, you know, both feet. And, you know, sometimes you nearly drown, but that's just me. I'm, I'm, I'm a boots and all guy. I've got to jump in. So, yes, I do things by habit. And uh, sometimes those are good habits. There are more good habits nowadays than there are bad habits. In terms of my mental health, no, I, you know, I don't have any routines that I go through. I've got a beautiful, loving wife um, who knows before I know that I'm going into the hole, yep. and she will remind me that I'm on that journey, and she'll take my phone off me, and she'll order me to bed, and, um, you know, allow me time to recover with dignity. Mm. Um, I often say to people, there's only one thing worse than having a, a mental health issue, and that's living with someone who has a mental health issue who refuses to acknowledge it. So, yeah, I'm a creature of habit, bro. Yeah, no, I didn't no. even get you to ask the question. I just <laughs> it's beautiful. Um, Mike? I wonder if maybe you'd just take us on that journey where you revisit a parliament, you had the medal that, um, and please forgive me because I, you know, I only see things in snaps and I got kids yeah. and job and whatnot. But what I was thinking in terms of the narrative is what the heck? People work their whole lives to get acknowledged like that. And this dude's giving it back, you know? And, and I understand, I saw a bit of the media around you gave it back. Could you maybe just, walk us through that, you know, just so people can have a good think about it because it's not that Yeah, I've, um, you know, I've got a lot of negative uh, feedback for that. People going, we nominated you for this award and, you know, you threw it back in people's faces. But I needed to make a point. Mm. And the point that I was making was I gave this country my word that things were going to change. I sat alongside the Prime Minister when they made their announcements that things were going to change. And then I sat back for the next two years and when nothing was changing, I refused to criticise the government. You know, I, I, I did not have a bad word to say to anybody. Radios would ring me up, uh, TV journalists, um, uh, newspaper journalists would ring me up and go, can you comment on this? This is not happening. And my, my response to every single one of them was um, be patient, mm. be patient. This is a government that cares. This is a government that is going to change, even though I had the sense of, of doom, of impending doom. Um, and then just before, you know, I made the announcement about the medal, you know, I was thinking, you know, I was getting so frustrated and, and not angry, frustrated, and I, I just... You know, I felt like I was letting everybody down. People were starting to criticise me. You said things were going to change and, you know, nothing's changed and you, now you're not saying anything. You've just been bored off by the, you know. So I went and saw a, um, a front bench minister who I won't mention his name. 
but I went and saw him and I said, bro, you know, what's happening? He goes, you've got to be patient. I said, listen, man, I've been waiting for two years now. You know, Jacinda used to return my calls. She used to return my texts for no reason at all. She's cut me off. She's not responding, you know, and and I just feel like I gave my word to the public that, that you guys were going to make a difference. You are not making a difference. And he goes, look, bro, what can we do? I said, look, there's nothing you can do. It's been two years. I said, you know what, it feels that bad. That you know, I've I feel like giving my New Zealand Order of Merit back. And in that moment, this frontline MP for the Labour Party turned around and laughed. And he said, ha, Well, there goes your knighthood. And I was like, Do you think that I am in this for a knighthood? Do you think that I'm doing this? for an award, and in that moment, it became clear to me that that's what I needed to do. The door that opened on that day was the door to Parliament where I was handing that medal back. I had, you know, it was a quip, but in that moment, I knew that that was why, Um because I'm not in this for knighthoods, you know. One of my one of my dearest friends today um, just left me 15 minutes ago to to rush up to Starship Hospital where her daughter um, had a major attempt on her life while she was in the care of Auckland Hospital. Um, I'm in this, so you know. Parents and our kids don't have to go through this trauma, um, through this broken system that's not working. And with my dying breath, I'm going to use everything in my power to change the system. And if this government or my detractors or anybody else thinks that I'm going to shut up and sit here and, 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 and cop out, you got another thing coming. I'm going to be here pushing for change until the day I die. Mike King, thank you so much for joining me. I just have this picture of your your old man, <laughs> and he's like, "Go get him, son." Hey, that's that's good shit. I like that. I like those kind of that imagery, and um, you know, it's simple. It's something that it's worth it's worth fighting for. It's what every Marvel film tells us, right? Stand up. I was listening to the those Johnny Cash songs, you know, stand me up to the gates of hell and I won't back down. But it's not yeah. so easy when you think, how am I not going to back down? And, well, we're watching to see you won't back down and maybe that'll give us the uh, permission to not back down ourselves. Um, Mike, it's no point in me saying where can people follow you because they know you better than me, but Gumboot Friday, all of that stuff, people just got to get online and engage with it, right? That's all right, bro. Hey, thanks for thanks for having me on, Will. Uh, great fan of your podcast. Thank and you. It's been an honor being here. Love you, my bro. Cheers, brother. Holding my head again, making my way through crowded thoughts. Sometimes it's hard to get out of it. Broke my heart in the dark. I was just trying to feel something. Falling asleep to the sound of it 
Always used to let you clean up the messes Down on my knees, thought I couldn't stand up on my own Turns out sometimes you're stronger alone Bringing out the fight, yeah, bring on all the lightning Cause I'm looking for a hero, look inside the mirror I find one, oh too hard pick it up dust it off when i fall down 11 i get up 12 don't need nobody else yeah i can save myself got burned but i learned our scars make us who we are now i'm 10 feet tall over my demons remind me no one's got me like myself yeah i love me without any Help. I'm the best thing to believe in So I'm bringing out the fight, yeah, bring on all the lightning Cause I'm looking for a hero, look inside the mirror I find one, oh, carry the hurt when it gets too hard Pick it up, dust it off, when I fall down a As heavy as a season And the sun is always right behind the storm 